I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. Marcel, can you believe that when this episode airs, it will be October? Maybe even November? Maybe even next June? The future is truly unknowable, Hannah. What are we even doing? (laughs) I don't know. But that's never stopped us from anything. So... (laughs) I propose that we make some really wild predictions for the future mm. in today's sorting chat. This is a great idea. Let's just let's just go for it. Let's pick the wildest things we can think of. All right, what's the wildest thing you can think of? Oh, okay. You're not going to believe this. This one is truly wild. A fourth wave of COVID-19 sends everyone back to home base. No one is allowed outside, and no one is actually surprised, and some people are even relieved because it turns out that deciding a pandemic is over before it's over doesn't actually make it over. That's my wild prediction. I actually think that prediction is really tame, and so I'm going to make an even (laughs) wilder one and say that there is no fourth wave because governments at all levels reimpose a combination of mandatory masking and stay-at-home orders alongside investing in public (laughs) health care, and we really step up and we really care for one another and we really make safe and responsible decisions, and everything's fine. That is, in fact, a really... That is is super wild. Okay, all right, okay. Um, Britney Spears is finally emancipated from her horrible father, and she goes on to have a quiet and successful career as a folk singer. Marcel, did you know that her father just announced that he was going to step back? No. (laughs) Obviously. 
sleep. It happened like <laughs> yesterday. We don't know how long it's going to take. And we don't know if the folk singing career is going to happen. So this still counts as a wild speculation. But also, watch out because you're a witch. <laughs> it's true. What else have we got? Okay, how about this? Protesters and organizers have successfully shut down all pipelines on Indigenous lands as part of the process of land back, returning all land to Indigenous stewardship in a move that will begin to reverse climate change. That would be amazing. Okay. Okay. How about one of those, like, penis-shaped rockets full of billionaires heading into space explodes, and then the person who inherits all the money begins to systematically redistribute it and dismantle their accumulated wealth and, in fact, revolutionizes our economic stratification. (laughs) Wow. This is a lot to happen by November, but you know what? You got to dream big. Yeah. Dream big or go home. (laughs) I'm already at home. Same. (laughs) Ready for that stay-at-home order. (laughs) Still here. (laughs) Well, now that we're getting down to business, let's get serious about everyone's favorite rationale for a lightning strike. It's Granger Danger. What are we going to talk about today, Hannah? We're going to talk about Hermione and some things. We're going to talk about Hermione and some things. And I think what we are really going to talk about today is the way that Hermione is positioned in this book as an object of romantic interest. And maybe we should start off by you pointing out something that I had never realized before, but that makes me very uncomfortable, which is that (laughs) Hermione is 14 and she's dating an 18-year-old professional adult who everybody else was surprised to find out was even still a student. Yeah. Did I just say professional adult? You did, but you're not wrong. I mean, we know that there's like, there's, there does not seem to be any kind of vocational or college training in the wizarding world. And so when you're done at school, you're just a professional adult. Like, <laughs> why is Crumb still in school? Probably because he had to take a bunch of semesters off to play professional Quidditch. So he's definitely old. <laughs> I definitely meant to say professional athlete, but he is both a professional athlete <laughs> and an adult and a professional adult. All of these things are true. They're all true. Okay, so I did a little bit of reading. I did discover that Hermione, for some strange reason, is actually 15. She's like almost a full year older than Harry and Ron for some reason. So she was born in September of 1979, and Harry is born in July of 1980. So canonically... Hermione is, like, nearly a year older than her two besties. And so when she's dating Crumb, she is 15. I'm not sure that it makes it that much better that she's dating an 18-year-old, but I did date an 18-year-old when I was 15, so I'm, like, I'm creeped out in a different way. (laughs) I definitely, like, my attitude towards teen girls who date much older men is usually it doesn't say anything bad about the girl and it says something kind of dubious about the man. Absolutely. And that's not just my misandry. (laughs) I made that very heteronormative in the way I articulated it, but I think generally in relationships where there's a significant age 
difference, the onus is very much on the older partner mm-hmm. to ensure that there is no strange power imbalance in that age difference. And that is the one thing I will say for this relationship is that there does not appear to be any strange power imbalance. Like, she doesn't seem to have been pressured into dating him. Mm -hmm. He doesn't seem to be, like, pushing her to do anything. But there's definitely this sense that this is the book where we are supposed to begin to see Hermione as a potential object of romantic desire. Absolutely. And that there are a couple of key things that are supposed to make her legible in that way. And one is our narrator, Harry, informing us that she is now hot. <laughs> Again, it's it's she's all that. <laughs> he she's all that, sir. Or she she's all that's herself. <sighs> that was a bad sentence. Don't edit it out. Staying in. Keep it in there. <laughs> But that's, you know, Harry's like our objective third party, just being like, as a person not interested in her, I'm here to tell you, Hermione's hot now. And then the other thing is that it's got to be established that she is the object of desire to somebody who matters. And so that's kind of like the role that Crumb plays is that he's not a particularly fully developed character. We don't really find out much about him at all. He is just there as a person Ron admires and a person who has some prestige and some established desirability because of his fame. So his desire for Hermione is narratively there almost entirely just to tell us Hermione is worth wanting now. Yeah, I think that that interpretation really checks out because I don't buy that there were no attractive and studious, like, sixth and seventh years also hanging out at the library. Like, that doesn't check out. (laughs) I mean, we know that there are because they're asking Harry out. (laughs) That's true. But if they're asking Harry out, Hannah, are they really serious I think that the partial lesson that Hermione's desirability is teaching us is that in order to be seriously desirable, you need to have no interest in men whatsoever. Mm. I don't think it's no interest whatsoever because she does agree to go out with him. And she is, you know, happy to be going out with him. And she is flattered by the fact that he said that he's never felt that way about anybody before and invited her to come visit him in the summer. It's quite cute. Yeah, like she likes that stuff, but she's not boy crazy. You know, this is in scare quotes because it's a real, it's a real messed up, like, ableist, misogynist phrase. But... We're going to see this even more in the books to come, Mm -hmm. that there is this treatment of, like, if romance is a thing that boys want, that seems to be fine and normal and part of their, like, standard progression. But if romance is a thing that girls want, then they are silly and flighty and unserious. Totally. I can't wait until we get to book six. Just watch everybody just be real silly. so many hormones. The other thing I would add into this conversation, and this is building a little bit on something we talked about in our episode about structuralism, Mm -hmm. is the way that the narrative sets up 
a movement into romantic interest and specifically romantic interest for the opposite sex. She said in scare quotes <laughs> because sex isn't a binary, so it can't have an opposite. And also, <laughs> sex isn't what attraction is based on. Everybody knows all these things. Anyway, <laughs> the sort of heterosexual romantic desire is figured in these books as not only sort of inevitable, but as a sort of like particular stage of naturalized development. Right? That a certain point in your life, you will begin to be interested in heterosexual romance. And that is just a sign that you are developing as anticipated. Absolutely. Like, I'm not sure what it's like for Gen Z, those Zoomers who are still in high school right now. But I believe from my experience as a millennial who was once upon a time in high school, like a trillion years ago, even if you were not yourself attracted to anyone, there's still this like expectation that you do the teenage crush and ask out thing and the dances. It's built right into our society. It's built into the wizarding world. It's like, these are all expectations, irrespective of where the actual children are at. Yeah. And also, you know, assuming that not only is it normalizing the idea that everybody will become interested in romance at roughly the same age, as though that's a sort of natural point in progression. And not only is it assuming that everybody, when they become interested in romance, will become interested in heterosexual romance, because there's nary a queer youth to be seen canonically. <laughs> But it's also assuming that inevitably everyone will become interested in romance, which is also not the case. There are aromantic and asexual people who exist and are real. And all of these narratives of like, here is our heroine and she is being established to us as an interesting character in this book largely through the lens of romance. Like, it it does a lot of things, including reinforcing this idea that, like, if you are a 15-year-old who doesn't particularly want to go to a dance with a boy, then there's probably something wrong with you. Which there is not. There are a lot of good reasons to not want to go to a dance with a boy at literally any age. Yeah. No dances, no boys. That's how I feel. We need to get a, like, no gods, no masters shirt, but it <laughs> says no dances, no boys. That sounds good. <laughs> In the last wrap-up episode, we swapped out yuck, yuck. Because Prisoner of Azkaban doesn't really contain much fashion to speak of. But holy guacamole, is there a lot to say about fashion in Goblet of Fire. So I'm going to do that right now. Take us on the fashion parade. So we've talked already a little bit about fashion 
in our episode about transcoding, both the arbitrary gendered nature of robes and the sort of hyper-femininity of Rita Skeeter's clothing, and a little bit in our episode on magical capital when we referred to the quality of the robes everyone wears in the Yule Ball. What I'd like to do in this segment is dig down a little bit deeper into gender and clothing as we see it in this book, especially because we get such a wide range of outfit descriptions, much wider than normal, particularly between, you know, the Quidditch World Cup and the different schools arriving and the Yule Ball. So I'm really interested in the question of what the fashion in this book tells us about the relationship between gender and dress. So to start off, I did a little reading and I found a really interesting article by a non-binary fashion writer named Emilia Bergoglio on the origins of gendered fashion. It's for a website called Seamwork, which is a, a sewist website. And they're writing about how sewing your own clothes can really help you overcome the whole idea of gender binary in fashion. But it got me thinking, I know I've talked about Beau Brummel before, and for those of you who don't recall, in an earlier look book segment, I talked about Beau Brummel as being the sort of origin of dandyism, who created very normative structures around what menswear was allowed to look like. And unsurprisingly, they also bring up Beau Brummel in this article because he really was the criminal of the history of fashion. But they make this point, and I'm going to quote from the article. So they write, In the West, until the 17th century, women's wear and men's wear were fairly similar. They were both based around a tunic-style garment and made by the same professionals, the tailors. Generally speaking, the clothing divide was based on class and not gender. And it really wasn't until the 18th century that women's fashion and men's fashion began to be divided. There were different people who made those different kinds of clothes, right? We had seamstresses and tailors divided out. And particularly, women's fashion began to be identified as being frivolous while men's fashion was serious. So we've got all kinds of fashion chaos <laughs> happening in this book. But what really stands out to me is the function of robes. And we know I have a long history of being interested in robes. I'm primarily interested in robes because of my almost religious conviction that wizards wear nothing <laughs> under them. What I hadn't thought about before was how the convention of wizards wearing robes obviously comes from the way that a lot of Western fantasy borrows from the visual iconography of medievalism. Mm -hmm. And so they're dressed in robes because robes and tunics were sort of the standard dress of the Middle Ages. And robes and tunics, as we have established, are clothing that are significantly less gendered and significantly more about class. And so we see some interesting tensions in this book emerging around the idea of how the quality of the robes that you wear indicate your class, really, really more than your gender, because everybody is wearing the same basic garment, which is robe. Right, right. And where gender becomes a problem is primarily around 
appropriate muggle dress. Mm-hmm. Because muggle dress seems to be more overtly gendered than wizard dress. So that's where we end up with these scenes at the Quidditch World Cup where wizards are wearing long flowery nightgowns or a kilt and a poncho is another outfit that's briefly described to us. I gotta say, I'm personally surprised that kilts and ponchos don't go together more frequently considering how much it rains in Scotland. But like, you know what? That point, we can pick up another time. Yeah, absolutely. We also get some other, we get some trousers. We get some specific kinds of trousers described to us. But the focus is on, you know, here are the wizards who are doing it wrong. They mistranslate their wizarding garments into muggle garments, not understanding that muggle garments are gendered in a way that wizarding garments are perhaps not. Mm-hmm. And then with the arrival of the Beaubaton and Durmstrang students, we get a sense of how their robes mark them. They mark forms of difference, but those forms of difference, no matter what the movies try to say, (laughs) aren't actually about gender, Mm -hmm. right? They are kind of more about class because there's a really strong implication through Fleur's being unimpressed with Hogwarts and being like, oh, at Beaubaton, we have like a thousand ice sculptures dancing for us every day. (laughs) And then Crumb is like, oh, this is way nicer mm-hmm. than Durmstrang. And Durmstrang, we never light the fires and the castle is very small. There's only four floors. And so the fact that the Beaubaton students show up dressed in silk and that the Durmstrang students show up in cloaks of some kind of shaggy matted fur... <laughs> I would say that there's some class marking happening here. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if the Durmstrang students have to hunt the animals in their first week at Durmstrang that they will then use to make their cloaks, you know? Like, the cloaks and the robes definitely zero in on the differences between between the two schools. And yeah, I suppose... I can totally see how it is a class difference, but then at the same time, I'm also thinking about, like, when, you know, the British royal family, like, goes to hunt and, like, they wear their, like, tartans and their wellies and stuff like that. So it's also, it also seems more like a sort of, like, a function versus not function. What's the opposite of function? Frilly you know, function versus frivolity does sort of take us back to that distinction that Bergoglio points out about the gendering of clothing, Mm -hmm. that menswear is serious and women's wear is frivolous. And that, I think, explains a little bit the way that these houses get turned into very gendered constructs in the movie. That's true, yeah. Right? That sort of Beaubaton is a more frivolous house, a house that is more interested in aesthetics, that is not dressed practically for the weather. Mm -hmm. And even though in the book those are not explicitly made feminine things, they translate into femininity because because we associate them with femininity. We can also think about this too in relation to Madame Maxime because she is the only head of school who is presented to us as a woman, and she herself is very 
very glamorous, you know, with her own opals and her black satin. And so even even if unconsciously there are still associations there between like women do not dress practically, but Karkaroff, who is easily the silliest character <laughs> in this book. He has a lot of competition, but... <laughs> yeah, so, like, he is also sort of set apart from the Durmstrang students. Like, we learn at the end that, like, he actually doesn't do anything. They're like, oh, how are you going to get home? And the Durmstrang students are like, he does nothing. <laughs> My point being that, yeah, there are additional layers of, like... <laughs> gender at the heart of how the school uniforms function. Yeah. And he's not dressed like the other Durmstrang students, right? The Durmstrang students are wearing these functional, heavy furs, and he's wearing sleek silver furs that match his hair. There's no way that he hunted those silver foxes. There's no way. Not a chance. On the topic of the gendering of Beaubaton, it stood out to me on this read-through as I was hunting very specifically for the language of how people are dressed, that Madame Maxime is not described as wearing ropes. Oh, tell me more. I missed this. When we first encounter her, she is just described as being dressed head to toe in black satin. So we don't know what garment she is wearing. But at the Yule Ball, when Everybody is wearing dress robes. Everybody, right? McGonagall is in red tartan dress robes. <laughs> Percy is in brand new navy blue dress robes. Everybody is wearing a dress robe. Except for Madame Maxime, who is wearing a flowing gown of lavender silk. And Hagrid. Oh who is wearing his very bad suit. So why? Why are those two, where everybody else is wearing these, like, old-timey garments that complicate the gendered nature of mm -hmm. dress? You know, even in situations where, as with Durmstrang and Beaubaton, it reiterates some of the gendered associations of clothing, there is still this this basic idea that people are wearing this less gendered garment, except our two half-giants. And you would think, practically speaking, that robes would be a lot easier to get in tall sizes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, of all the things that Hagrid could wear, a suit seems like the hardest thing to tailor. Definitely. I've got a hypothesis, and that is the way that their half-giant status positions them in the text as slightly less than human. And that that is going to become like a narrative problem after the Yule Ball, right? That Rita Skeeter is going to overhear them talking about the fact that they're both half-giant. Hagrid will almost lose his job. They are going to be positioned as not quite humans who are an implicit danger to the children around them. And that the narrative going out of its way to gender them is a narrative strategy of convincing us, the readers, to see them as human because of the way that cis-normativity and heteronormativity figure subjects as more fully human. I think that makes 
perfect sense, personally speaking, because of the fact that I never even really noticed on reading that they weren't wearing robes because it was just so naturalized in my brain. Yeah, a gown, right? A perfectly normal thing to wear. A suit, a totally normal thing to wear. But it's been established to us that wizards don't wear those clothes. And when they try to, they do a bad job. And so that's the other possible reading, is that it's actually making them stand out as not quite belonging in the wizarding world because they're not dressed quite the same as everybody else. I'd love to hear reader theories about this because I only just noticed it on this read-through and I think it's really interesting. Okay, one last fashion note before we move on. The Weird Sisters are dressed in black robes that have been artfully ripped and torn. <laughs> These books are so silly. They're so silly. <laughs> it's like the Wizarding World's answer to grunge rock and Nirvana. Like, where? Where on a robe do you tear it? Because jeans are torn, like, where a jean would be torn if you had worn them a lot and you just, like, didn't give a damn. Where on a robe tears from regular wear that's like, yeah, whatever, I'm a badass. I've been wearing those robes for years. I don't even care. Where? <laughs> they were artfully molded. <laughs> Just, yeah, like the armpit's just been ripped out, like on a t-shirt that you've been wearing too long. Oh, my God. I love Luke Book. It's so <laughs> fun. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I propose we rededicate this next segment to something that Hannah pointed out in our episode on trans studies. During a chapter-length dick joke, the only spell that Ollivander can think of to cast with a lady champion's wand is Orchidius, which is an explosion of metaphorical vaginas. My goodness. Anyway, welcome to Orchidius. Segment dedicated to things that delight and thrill us, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Is a segment dedicated to something delightful we noticed in this read through. <laughs> so we have to find something else in addition to the explosion of metaphorical vaginas, which is insufficient. And so, Marcel, instead, I want us to talk about the riddle of the Sphinx. Okay. Okay. I know I mentioned this in passing when we had Jess on to talk about monstrous women in this book. But the riddle of the Sphinx, it's a real classic, right? What walks on four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, three legs in the evening? Um, a Christian when they are carried by God through hard times? 
No? A Gentile? Goyim? <laughs> I love this Greek mythology. For sure the Sphinx riddle was about Jesus. <laughs> no, you're wrong. It's not Jesus. It's man. Because in the morning of your life, you crawl on all fours as a baby. And in the afternoon of your life, you walk upright on two legs. But in the evening of your life, you walk with the help of a cane. This is a very, very bad riddle. It's an extremely bad riddle. (laughs) And it's a real classic. And I am kind of obsessed with riddles in general because I think that they're all bad. Okay. And silly. And... (laughs) You know, for literary evidence, I will point you to every riddle that Bilbo and <laughs> Gollum <laughs> and Gollum exchange in The Hobbit. Each one sillier and more absurd than the last. What's in my pocket? <laughs> What's in my pocket is literally not a riddle. It's a come on. <laughs> not a riddle. Not a riddle. So we've had it established for us already that riddles play some important role at Hogwarts, which is to say, I mean, has this been established in the books yet? Even in the first, in the Philosopher's Stone, there's the riddles with the potions. Oh my God, you're right. Ugh, these books are so full of riddles. (laughs) Anyway, here's what I have to say. Okay, all right. This riddle is unbelievably silly. (laughs) That's it. taking the long way around. (laughs) It's part of my larger sort of argument that within the Western canon as a whole, riddles are extremely silly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in this book, this riddle is extremely silly. It is silly in a different way because most riddles are like, I have hands, but I can't pick things up. What am I? A clock? Sure. Yep. yep. That was my that was my great riddle. But this one is like a word game. It's like a jumble. <laughs> anyway, the answer is spider, and then after solving it, he sees a spider, which I really think he should have seen coming. Marcel, what was your favorite new thing you noticed in this book? <laughs> I think that this is the first time that I've read this book since seeing Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And I had forgotten that the Nifflers make an appearance, that they are first introduced to us in this book, which is so silly because the Nifflers are like easily the best part of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, hands down. The reason I bring them up right now is because I want to give a shout out in this wrap-up episode to Hagrid's renewed confidence as a teacher Because, you know, after he takes his brief leave of absence to, like, deal with his personal stuff, he comes back and he is like, I'm just as good of a teacher as Professor Grubblyplank. You want unicorns? Here's some unicorn foals. And guess what? Boys are allowed to see them, too. (laughs) So this is actually a lesson for all of the students. (laughs) So arguably a better subject than adult unicorns. And he brings in Nifflers, which are not only adorable, but also like a legit magical creature that isn't just a breeding experiment of Hagrid's gone totally awry that he's introducing the students to for the first time. So yeah, I'd say that's it for Orchidius this time around. What do you think, Hannah? Yeah, those were all really fun and delightful. And I certainly hope we don't 
follow this segment with one that's going to make me sad. Nah. (laughs) Because we love to end these wrap-up episodes on a tragic note, it's time for devastating fun facts, in which Marcel (laughs) shares some fun facts about Hogwarts students and staff not mentioned in the books because these things were not part of Harry's journey. Okay, fun fact. We know that Barty Crouch Jr. proposes an elaborate plot in which he plans to impersonate Alistair Moody, who has just been hired to teach Defense Against the Dark Arts at Hogwarts. The reason that Voldemort agrees to this extremely elaborate and drawn-out plan, with multiple points at which things could go incredibly wrong, Mm -hmm. is simply because Voldemort, like Barty Crouch Jr., also has a passion for magical education and is intrigued by the possibility of taking over Hogwarts one teacher at a time. (laughs) Imagine how much different the Battle of Hogwarts would be if, like, it suddenly turned out that half of the staff were just Death Eater imposters. It's a legit good plan. Yeah. When you put it that way. (laughs) (sighs) Okay, fun fact. Contrary to popular belief, Madame Maxime did not know that she was half-giant when Hagrid tried to bond with her over their shared heritage at the Yule Ball. She just thought she was really tall? Yes! Maxime, like Hagrid, was raised solely by her wizard father, and her father, being very well-versed in anti-giant prejudice, just never told her that her mother was a giant. And instead, he just raised his daughter to have such confidence in her appearance and her intellect that it never even occurred to her to ask why she was so much taller than all of her classmates. And so then, when Hagrid asks her at the Yule Ball which of her parents was a giant, Maxime's whole life flashes before her eyes, and she's very distressed because all of a sudden everything starts to make sense in a way that it never did before. So that night, she sends an owl to her aging father. He finally replies with the truth. So she learns that her mother was, in fact, a giant. She goes through some feelings. And, of course, Hagrid doesn't know any of this. So, like, it takes the two of them a little while to kind of smooth things over. But when Madame Maxime finally reveals that she didn't know anything about her mother and she just got very upset because all of a sudden everything she thought she knew about herself and her life turned out to be a lie, Hagrid is very kind and supportive. And I think it's important to point out he stops trying to seduce her (laughs) at this point because he is her only friend and confidant that she can talk to about this. And so the two become lifelong companions and... You know, maybe someday they get romantic. I, I'm not sure. I haven't I haven't gotten there. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Hagrid would be a really good person to help you, like, process some vital new information you found out about yourself. Totally. Right? I mean, we've already established in book one that he is the keeper of the keys, that he is this liminal figure that helps people transition from one world into another. Mm -hmm. And so he's just continuing to play that role with Madame Maxime. Exactly. Hagrid Hagrid is a good guy. Okay, last one this time. Fun fact. Sirius spends a lot of time in his dog form when he's hiding. We know this to be canonically true. 
As such, he's a real friendly pupper. <laughs> he builds great relationships with the various neighbors in the places where he hides out. Not unlike the tramp from Lady and the Tramp. <laughs> oh, it's a butch. You know, that kind of thing. They like <laughs> throwing bones and stuff. Anyway, so this got me to thinking about all of the different names that these neighbors might have for him because they don't know that his name is Snuffles or Sirius. And so they have other nicknames for him. Here are just a few. Shaggy, Trouble. Here comes Trouble. <laughs> Here comes Trouble. <laughs> Honey Bun, Subwoofer. This was definitely the name that a muggle gave him. Captain Floof. <laughs> and last but not least, King Arfur. <laughs> Those... Are your fun facts? No. What? Those didn't devastate me at all. This book is too sad. This book is already sad (laughs) enough. This book doesn't need devastating fun facts. It needs some, like, legit fun facts. (laughs) Great. Maybe as the books keep getting sadder, devastating fun facts will become uplifting fun facts or just (laughs) fun facts. Oh, I take that as a no. No, there's no way. Before we pour a bucket of enchanted water on the Goblet of Fire, we want to end with some questions and concerns to keep in mind going forward. Now, Hannah, your questions and concerns to keep in mind going forward were excellent, and I barely have anything to contribute here. You know why this list is so good? Because I went onto Twitter (laughs) and was like, hey, everybody, I don't remember what I did five minutes ago, let alone what we discussed in the last eight episodes. So please tell us what some of the things we need to keep an eye on are. Crowdsourcing is so good. I know. And our listeners are extremely smart. And so it is. It's just really, it's just really great. So here are some things people pointed out. One is exactly this ongoing development of romance as a trope and storyline. One listener even suggested we might want to consider an episode on the conventions of romance as a genre. And so there's definitely going to be, you know, what just begins to emerge in this book is going to be even more the case in the books to come, which is that the framing of these characters as invested in romance is going to start to really structure their narratives. So we need to keep an eye on how that sort of shifts the way they relate to each other. More? Yep. Another (laughs) (laughs) another one that listeners pointed out is that now that we have explicitly named and identified some of the ways in which characters are transcoded, that there will be future opportunities to continue to notice transphobic representations of villainous characters. Mm, mm -hmm. So that's something to keep an eye on as an ongoing trope in the series. Very good. Another listener pointed out that considering that we've already been talking and thinking about race and how it functions within the series, particularly around anti-muggle violence, that we need to keep an eye on how Voldemort's return emboldens certain forms of racism and hate crimes. Another thing that we're really going to want to notice in the next book is the role that the media plays. And that's something that 
again, was foreshadowed for us in this book because of Rita Skeeter as a character and the way we can see her manipulating narratives in ways that have direct impact on our characters. And that's going to become even more the case in the next book. And it's going to shift from being, you know, the project of a single individual to a larger state-funded project that is invested in systematically undermining a particular politically unpopular perspective. My goodness. In light of that final point of yours in particular, I was thinking about the introduction of the pensive. And I'm not sure if I'm using structural correctly here, so you may need to correct me if I'm wrong. But (laughs) it seems to me that the introduction of the pensive structurally balances out the introduction of widespread unreliability because the pensive is this tool that allows us to take first-person accounts and memory seriously, which is sort of directly at odds with everything that happens with the Daily Prophet and with, as you were saying, the press and propaganda and conspiracy theories and the the general statewide rejection of a uh, of an unpopular political opinion. So both of these, book five and six, are both really interesting for the way that they think about reliability and unreliability of knowledge. Because on a surface level, the pensive seems to offer totally objective fact, right? That it's like, no matter what the media says, here's what actually happened. Because the immersive experience of being dropped in makes you feel like you're actually there. And so it's like, yeah, this must be what actually happened. But it's not. It's what people remember. And people can alter them. And so there is a lot of play happening in the fifth and sixth books around the idea of knowledge and uncertainty and authority versus lack of authority. So yeah, 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 yeah. This is definitely a thing to keep, to keep an eye on as we read. Ooh, goody. <laughs> the one other thing that somebody pointed out, and I am really interested in thinking about this as we read back through this, uh, through this fifth book. The fifth book is well known for being the book where Harry is extremely angry. That's why it's so long. Because he's always talking in all caps. Exactly. (laughs) A very good typography joke. I always like it. Thank you, Hannah. So not only do we have an opportunity to think a little bit more about trauma, which I think is going to be really important, but we also, as one listener pointed out, have the opportunity to think about authenticity and the idea of pretending versus refusing to pretend, right? Pretending to be somebody that you're not versus Harry's, like, belligerent refusal to play any games, even though it would actually probably be a pretty smart move for him to, like, chill (laughs) a bit. Yeah. So I think that's that's another thing that I think is worth thinking about. Like, beyond being a signifier of trauma— What are some other ways that we can read Harry's anger in this next book? That is a great plan. 
I love making excuses for Harry's anger. <laughs> I mean, it's not making excuses, but like, it's just such a common complaint about the fifth book. And I love to troll. So <laughs> bless you. You're so good at it. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to NotSorryWorks.com or wherever podcasts are found. If you want to hang out with us more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at OhWitchPlease. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to Not Sorry for having us and to our always-on-the-ball producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. Thanks, Coach. If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts? At the end of every episode, we, by which I mean Marcel, is going <laughs> to shout out everyone who left us a five-star review, which means you have to review us if you want the opportunity to make Marcel say whatever you want. Thanks this week to Maris Quixa. When I'm not sure, but I want to sound sure, I shout. <laughs> Molly Mo, Effundatrix, and I'm not a witch, I'm your waifu. <laughs> <laughs> Quiet witch. I'm, I'm not, not a witch, a witch I'm, I'm your, your wife. <laughs> Classic. Another excellent canonical witch, Carol Kane. Thank you to all of our wonderful Patreon supporters, whose names I don't need to read out, for making this show possible. If you want to walk those metaphorical halls decorated with the solid gold content you crave, don't forget to head over to patreon.com slash ohwitchplease. We'll be back next episode to start our discussion of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. But until then, later witches! the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.